You're going to hear some shocking truth from a medical doctor today about transgender sex change surgery. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. There is some major news that you probably have not heard that is basically going to be widely suppressed by the secular media. News that goes against the PC narrative, news that tells the uncomfortable truth, something you haven't heard about, major scientific study. Yeah, well, actually, an alleged major scientific study getting pulled because it was not accurate. So the inaccurate results widely reported the fact that it's pulled. You won't hear that. We'll be talking with a special guest at the bottom of the hour. This is Michael Brown. Welcome to the broadcast, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Anything you want to talk to me about, phone lines are wide open. We're going to play some clips from Abby Johnson's historic pro-life speech at the RNC convention last night. I was not playing clips from... Democrats last week was not planning on playing clips from Republicans this week, but because it was such a strong pro-life message, because the Democrats basically avoided talking about it, by and large, through the convention, it's important that we draw attention to this historic pro-life message in the midst of a political convention. Also, if we have time, I want to play a brand new song for you. My friend James Robinson sent it to me. Just written a prayer for revival in America, if you're watching with great graphics as well. And he said, hey, put it out on the radio, share it however you can. So if we have time, we'll play that for you as well. Okay, first, first, I just got a note from a pastor who is unashamed of his stand for the gospel and unashamed of his stand for righteousness. And he wanted us to know that his 15-year-old daughter got kicked out of school yesterday. She went to school wearing a T-shirt that said homosexuality is a sin, and then beneath it, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. In her homeroom, there is a pride sticker on the wall, so LGBTQ pride. Her first period teacher is openly homosexual and was offended by the shirt and kicked her out of school or had her kicked out of school. So here's the issue. You might say, I don't think it's the wisest thing to put that message out or whatever. From what I understand, it's 15-year-old girl's own choice to do that fully. No one coerced her into doing that. But but here's the issue. Would Would you get kicked out of school if you wore a shirt that said adultery is sin? Or if you said fornication is a sin? Or if you said drunkenness is a sin? Would or anything else in that list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, would you get kicked out of school? You say, but I don't know if it's the right message. Hang on. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking if you'd wear it or your kid would wear it. or if I'm not asking that. I'm asking would the school kick you out for that. Now, here's the other thing. The kid could wear a shirt saying homosexuality is cool, and they wouldn't get kicked out. I'm 99.999% sure of that, that basically— as long as you are promoting what is PC, what is the spirit of the age, what the world embraces, no problem. 
And I asked specifically, can kids wear pro-gay apparel to their schools? And the answer was, yes, they can. And the school can push gay pride. And the school can have certain events to celebrate. can do all of that. But if you come with a message from the Bible, to be technical, homosexual practice is sin, right? With scripture reference, kicked out. What do you think of that? What do you think of how things have shifted and turned upside down? Abby Johnson, famous now for the movie Unplanned, which tells her story, movie I found tremendously moving and powerful. We had some of the folks from the movie, as well as Abby on herself, to talk about it. And she was a Planned Parenthood director of a local clinic and award-winning for her success. And they began to see more clearly the ugly side of the abortion industry. And then in front of her eyes, the horror of abortion and left that sinful, destructive industry and has helped, I think, something like 600 people now that used to work at Planned Parenthood or other abortion clinics leave and find new lives, new employment, etc. So let's listen to what she had to say last night. My name is Abby Johnson. And I spent eight years working for Planned Parenthood, but today I'm a pro-life activist. When I was in college, Planned Parenthood approached me at a volunteer fair. They talked about helping women in crisis and their commitment to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare. I was convinced to volunteer and later offered a full-time job as a medical assistant before my promotion to director of the clinic. I truly believed I was helping women. But things drastically changed in 2009. In April, I was awarded Planned Parenthood's Employee of the Year Award and invited to their annual gala where they present the Margaret Sanger Award, named for their founder. And Margaret Sanger was a racist who believed in eugenics. Her goal when founding Planned Parenthood was to eradicate the minority population. Today, almost 80% of Planned Parenthood abortion facilities are strategically located in minority neighborhoods. And every year, Planned Parenthood celebrates its racist roots by presenting the Margaret Sanger Award. Now, of course, the proponents of Margaret Sanger say that she wasn't a racist and you're misunderstanding her interest in eugenics. And when she talked about the weeds of society and she wasn't anti-black and you have to understand things better and so on, they'll, they'll try to defend her. What's interesting is that one clinic already was at upstate New York. They got rid of the Margaret Sanger Award because the whole cancel culture, now they look at her past more, they wanna cancel her out while continuing to work together for the terminating of the lives of the unborn, which disproportionately hit black and Hispanic communities. I look at that, please hear me. This is not my criticism of black and Hispanic communities. This is my criticism of Planned Parenthood, that this whole idea of being compassionate and being predominantly in poorer neighborhoods, that to me is a satanic attempt to wipe out the next generation of blacks and Hispanics. That's how I look at it. All right, Abby Johnson continues, listen to this. Later in August, my supervisor assigned me a new quota to meet, an abortion quota. I was expected to sell double the abortions performed the previous year. When I pushed back, underscoring Planned Parenthood's public-facing goal of decreasing abortions, I was reprimanded and told, 
Abortion is how we make our money. But the tipping point came a month later when a physician asked me to assist with an ultrasound guided abortion. Nothing prepared me for what I saw on the screen. An unborn baby fighting back, desperate to move away from the suction. And I'll never forget what the doctor said next. Beam me up, Scotty. The last thing I saw was a spine twirling around in the mother's womb before succumbing to the force of the suction. Listen, friends, the fact that that's at the Republican National Convention is massive. The fact that she's describing the horror of abortion on national TV and that station, as far as I know, did not cut away during that specifically is, is absolutely massive. Of course, they'll dispute, no, the baby can't move, the baby won't try to move, and the, the fact is it's brutal. And in watching the movie and seeing the ultrasound and seeing the baby abort it, I, I was not expecting it. I'd been given an advance code to watch at home and went onto the website where it was and watching, and I thought, okay, I, this probably happens later. You know, it's going to tell her story, and then later in the story it's going to show this. So I just thought this early on, her early life, and so I wasn't expecting it to happen pretty early in the movie. I was sitting there at my desk in my office. I was having salad. I was watching the screen, and suddenly this scene came out, and I completely lost it. I mean, uncontrollable sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. It took me about 15 minutes to get myself together, maybe a little longer. And I, I went to, to tell Nancy this movie, you've got to see this movie. But I couldn't get the words out. So there I am crying, can't get the words out. She's wondering, what happened? Somebody died, what's going on? And I was finally able to talk. That's, that's how it hit me, watching it on the movie. But think of being Abby Johnson in the room, hits her in an even more devastating way. And that is when she is going to make her way out of the abortion industry and end up becoming a pro-life champion. All right, she also said this. On October 6th, I left the clinic, looking back only to remember why I now advocate so passionately for life. I founded and currently run, and then there were none, a nonprofit organization that's helped nearly 600 abortion workers transition out of the industry. For most people who consider themselves pro-life, abortion is abstract. They can't even conceive of the barbarity. They don't know about the products of conception room and abortion clinics where infant corpses are pieced back together to ensure nothing remains in the mother's wombs. Or that we joked and called it the pieces of children room. You see, for me, abortion is real. I know what it sounds like. I, I know what abortion smells like. Did you know abortion even had a smell? I've been the perpetrator to these babies, to these women. And I now support President Trump because he has done more for the unborn than any other president. And then she goes on in her speech, enumerating the things that President Trump has done on behalf of the unborn. That to me just be as candid as can be is, is the game changer. That's reality. We have four years of Trump dramatically, clearly keeping his promises, his pro-life promises. Absolutely. And even if not every justice he appointed is, has behaved in the ultimate way that we want it, he's doing his best to appoint conservative justices that will hold to the Constitution as intended. And we have 
in the history of of the nation the most radical pro-abortion ticket ever with Biden-Harris. That's the reality. And sadly, former Vice President Biden, now presidential candidate Biden, has shifted more to the left, no longer stands for the Hyde Amendment, which would say you cannot use American tax dollars for funding of abortion. So that single issue remains a game changer for me. The slaughter of the unborn, just like in the days of slavery, to me, that would be where I'd start. And if one candidate was clearly advocating freeing the slaves and the other wanted to perpetuate it, that's where I'd stand. And even if the, if the character was somebody like a Donald Trump, he would get my vote. Just sharing honestly. I don't make an official endorsement, and I urge everyone to seek the Lord. But to me, this is, this is major, and therefore we draw attention to it. We'll be right back with your calls. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I want to play something for you, and then we're going to go to the phones. Sent to me earlier today by my dear friend James Robison, written, just written and produced now by Michael Anthony Curtis. Uh, Let's check this out. Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name, you know the text. It starts with us. Return to me, says the Father, and I will come and heal your land. Return to me, says King Jesus, the only hope for all of man. Lawlessness, it is abounding. The enemy, he wants your soul. Better heed the Holy Spirit. Please don't let your love grow cold. Return to me, says the Father, and I will come and heal your land. Return to me, says King. The only hope for all of man. Stop giving in to all deception that only serves to feed your flesh. Only in God, our one true master. Find holy righteousness. Return to me, says the Father, and I will come and heal your land. 
Return to me, says King Jesus, the only hope for all of man. The Antichrist is at the doorstep, but before he has his day, And every soul that would be saved Return to me, says the Father And I will come and heal your land Return to me, says King Jesus The only hope for all of man Turn to me, says King Jesus, the only hope for all of man. That's the truth, the only hope. So we turn to the Lord with all of our hearts. We can't influence what the world does. People make their own choices. We can't force them but we can turn our own hearts and then be a positive influence on the world around us. And hey, even during the time of the Antichrist, God's kingdom will advance. I want to share that just as a reminder, what we are about more than politics, more than culture. We're about the kingdom, God's kingdom, God's heart, about Jesus. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Martin in El Paso, Texas. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me on, Dr. Brown. Uh, I, ha- I have two questions for you. Uh, Go ahead. The, uh, the, the, uh, the first of the questions would be concerning the debate you had with Dr. James White on Revelation TV concerning, the, um, concerning exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, mm-hmm. You were explicit in giving your position in saying that, uh, that, that Jesus did die for the for healing, expecting it to be a common good, as I'm uh, quoting you roughly. But when I read to the scriptures, I see more or less a more or less on James White's side. Could you go ahead and flesh out your reasoning on why uh, you believe that Jesus died for the healing? Well, Jesus died for our sins, and because he died for our sins, with that there is healing for the whole person, and ultimately that's what even pays for our future resurrection. So. The, the Bible does not make a clear distinction between sin and sickness as if they're in totally different categories. That's why when the, the lame man, uh, the, the crippled man in Mark 2 is healed, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's why in James, Jacob, the fifth chapter, prayer for the sick, and if they've committed sins, they'll be forgiven. That's why Psalm 103, you, you forgive my sins, you heal my diseases. That's why the end of Isaiah 33, that the people living in glorified Zion will have no sickness because they'll be forgiven of their sin. So Jesus dies for our sins, but in dying for our sins provides healing for the whole being. So do we get emotional healing through the cross? Yes. Do we get spiritual healing through the cross? Yes. We also get physical healing. It's all something that flows out of it 
which is why during Jesus' healing ministry in Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, a verse about Jesus carrying our sicknesses on the cross, yet he applies it to his earthly healing ministry because his whole ministry was coming into this world, taking on our pain, our suffering, bearing it away, and then bringing us healing and redemption. So when you go through the Hebrew scriptures, you see that, that healing, when God says, I'm the Lord, your healer, in, in Exodus 15, that doesn't just mean physical illness there. He says, all the diseases, the plagues I put on Egypt, I won't put on you. It's, it's a broader thing. When he says, if you repent, Second Chronicles 7.14, I'll heal your land. It doesn't just mean heal because it's physical land. It means restore. So once you understand God's heart is to restore, was restoration purchased at the cross? Of course it was. But we don't, we're not going to see guaranteed healing in this world all the time. But the healing we do see is a direct result of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, okay, Dr. Brown, and my second question to you would be, uh, what general advice do you have to a young teenage uh, Christian like myself? I'm, I'm currently 16 years old, and since um, uh, my generation is heavily influenced by things like the prosperity gospel, the cancel culture, the pride movement, what general advice would you give someone like me in order to combat that sort of um, social battle? Yeah, Martin, I'm so glad you're asking that question. As you know, I came to faith at 16, so I'm, I'm so glad that you here you are as a serious thinking believer at the age of 16. I would encourage you to really deepen your relationship with God more than anything else in this world, that to the extent you can avoid wasted time, hours, texting, social media, entertainment, sports, and really focus on being with God, pouring into His Word, and not, not just theologically, but saying, God, speak to me. God, change me. God, open my understanding. And spending quality time with God, just saying, Lord, you're more important to me than anything in this world. If you'll do that first, put relationship with Him first, prayer in the Word first, and then look for opportunities to share your faith. That will, that will strengthen you as a result. That will sharpen you that will then bring you into challenges where people throw up objections and you need to review them and get answers to them. But a key reason that my life has been blessed and ministry has been blessed through these years is that I really began to go after the Lord earnestly. Obviously, you want to separate yourself from things you know are sinful. There's just so much temptation. You know, porn is so accessible. So much junk is accessible. The, the games, the video can just be so con consuming there's so much that can distract us. So you have a lot more challenges and temptations than I would have at that age. But the key thing is, separate yourself from the things you know to be wrong. Spend a lot of time with the Lord, and that's been a key for me. So because I had a light high school schedule, I had a lot of free time, and I began to spend more and more time with the Lord, hours with the Lord in prayer, the Word, meditating Scripture. Not just about theology, but really getting to know him, understand him, fellowship with him. Martin, let me, let me say it like this. You want to cultivate friendship with the Lord, that what you would do with someone that you wanted to be your very best friend, the time you'd spend with them, the quality interaction you'd have with them, the sharing of your heart, the wanting to understand their heart. You want to cultivate relationship with the Lord like he's your very, 
very best friend. And that means you go to him with questions and frustrations and pain. And I don't understand this. And I don't know what to do with this. And I'm concerned about the future. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, God. And out of that time, you'll lay some wonderful foundations. Because if you go to college, married, job, kids, life can be more challenging. So there's a ton of pressure on young people. But this is also a great, great time to put down deep spiritual roots in God and to to know God's love, to know that you're his kid, and then to develop a close relationship with him. That's it. Everything. Everything, Martin. Trust me. I'm talking with almost 50 years experience. Everything else will fall into place. God bless you. May you be strong in the Lord. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. There are some major things that have been happening in California that the whole nation needs to look at. And there's been a major report that has been withdrawn having to do with transgender surgery, sex change surgery, transgender identity. You're not going to hear about this in the secular media. What you will hear is misleading. And because of that, I've asked a colleague, we interact a lot online, a group of conservative activists and medical doctors and psychologists and others interacting re- regularly about the culture war. So I've, I've gotten to know and appreciate Dr. Andre Van Mol by, by email more than anything. And I asked, hey, could you come on the show with me? Let's talk about these key issues. So just a quick bio here. Uh, Andre, aside from being a committed Christian and active serving in church, is a board-certified family physician in private practice. He's the co-chair of the American College of Pediatricians Committee on Adolescent Sexuality. He's a blogger and media spokesperson for the Christian Medical and Dental Associations and co-chair of their new transgender task force. Dr. Van Mole works with Alliance Defending Freedom and Defense of Culture of Life and First Amendment Issues and advises Global Medical Research Institute. He and his wife, Evelyn, both former U.S. Naval officers, have two sons and two daughters, lot of whom were among their nine foster children. Uh, Andre, that's quite a bio there. Appreciate you joining us on the air. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Michael. All right, before we focus on this major news from the transgender world, news that, of course, the general population is not going to hear, Let's just talk about some of the battles that you've been facing in California, starting with the attempt to ban all counseling for people of all ages, for anyone with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender identity confusion. Am I exaggerating what California almost passed recently? Yeah, right. You've got it right. It was in 2018, and it was to be uh, part of the, in addition to the, the business code. That's being tried in different states, too basically categorize it as business fraud and find a fast track to, con- you know, basically controlling all speech on that because this would apply to books that were sold, anything that involved advertising for an event. Consequently, if your church or mine were having what we'd consider to be a very usual conference on uh, people that had come out, you know, of, of some uh, alternative sexuality, uh, courtesy of their relationship with Christ, uh, that would be 
viewed as business fraud if it was advertisement or, for example, ticket sales or something. Um, a lot of effort was put into fighting that. You know, new coalitions were formed in California. Basically, our prayer and goal was that uh, we would successfully, you know, co-laboring with Christ, of course, because it's nothing we can do our own, wake up the church in California, have them show up, and never leave again. And that bill, courtesy actually of personal relationships that different pastors forged with the author of the bill, he actually withdrew it, even though he could have passed it any day he wanted to and said as much. Uh, but the, the Lord was in it, and it, of course it ended up being a process that, as you said, you're not going to read about this in, in the popular media. I, I don't even think they'd know how to cover this angle. Um, but that got pulled back, although other bills, particularly those dealing with uh, transgender-identified issues, have tended to go through, uh, despite the strong effort of a, uh, a smaller group of us fighting these you know, by lobbying, personal testimony, written testimony, testifying in committee. Uh, so we hope that the least that would come out of that is that we generate a blueprint for other states to follow. Here are the academics. We, we've listed it out for you. Here's how you interact with the legislators. You know, here's how you do this and that. So that at least allies in other states that, you know, perhaps don't live in a state as desperate as California would have success where we had failures. Now, again, by God's grace and by, you know, strong, competent effort, uh, we've had several successes, uh, some of which we didn't expect, but there have also been some losses. But yet, as you mentioned, the losses so that we, we remain sober and grieved and working together, it's still illegal for a minor to receive professional counseling, right? So, again, tell me if I'm misrepresenting Correct. anything. Let's say you've got a 17-year-old girl Let's say that she was raped by an uncle. The family didn't know about this from the ages of 9 to 11. When she started to come into puberty, she felt repulsed by men and actually felt more comfort being around women. And now she's 16, 17, realizes she's attracted to, to women. She doesn't want to be. It, it's a violation of her faith or her own morals or just her childhood dream of being married to a man and having children. So she wants to get professional counseling to get to the root of, of her attractions, that's currently illegal in California and a bunch of other states. Again, am I misrepresenting anything the way I stated it? No, it's about uh, 20 states, more or less. Now, a, yep. a very large number of states have voted that kind of stuff down. They listened to the good counsel, you know, exactly the kind of scenario you're bringing up. You know, and, and, and basically these bans are based on uh, a lot of misrepresentation, you know, of what therapy is. Uh, and, and the implication that people are being forced into it, you know, kicking and screaming. Well, there's no pastor or counselor who wants an unwilling or unmotivated client. It goes nowhere. Um, but, you know, a strong example I was using, and I'll, I'll say it without using the names, but uh, in the past couple of years, there have been big people in Hollywood, you know, a particular one who comes out as being an abuser of men homosexually, and another one, an abuser of women. If both of those people were to go into a counselor and say, you know, although I'm happy with what I've used my baseline sexuality, I don't like the way I prey on people. Is there anything you can do to help me have a safer, saner sex life? The one um, who, who's doing it to the opposite sex can get the therapy, and the same sex one can't. Mm. That's ridiculous. It would be the same scenario, let's say you've got a boy being raised, I'm thinking of an actual case, by, by two lesbian moms, and as a little boy he starts saying, I'm a girl. Now he's maybe 10 years old, 
11 years old. You bring him to a psychologist. Psychologist says, well, he has gender dysphoria, so you need to recognize that he really is a girl in a boy's body and send him to school dressed as a girl. And then maybe in the next year, start putting him on hormone blockers and let's think about sex change surgery when he gets old enough. That would all be perfectly legal. But if that little boy is growing up, feels, I think I'm a girl, but I don't know. And his parents say, well, let's get counseling. And, you know, you're actually a boy. We want you. That would be illegal. So it would be perfectly legal to get to get on hormone blockers to stop the onset of puberty and then even talk about sex change surgery maybe when they're 18 years old. Perfectly legal, but illegal to help that kid feel at home in his own body. Is that accurate? Well, yeah, and this is, you know, in many of these states, yes. However, this is where ideology is ruling the roost and, and science is taking a back seat because there's no long-term studies supporting that, not good ones. Uh, and the international standard of care for a minor with gender incongruence or, you know, whatever we choose to call it, is called watchful waiting. And it doesn't mean you sit around and do nothing. It means it's a recognition that well over 85% of the time, uh, gender dysphoria will desist by adulthood. Watchful waiting also implies that there is ongoing psychological evaluation of support and support of both the child and the family because you are sure to find issues in both. We have 40 years of literature on that. And yet, um, we have the ideologues who have risen to power uh, in several groups, medical organizations and whatnot, that don't do that. They, they want, basically, you know, the person can walk in and get started. And we have several examples we found of people who walked into gender clinics, their very first appointment, walk out 45 minutes later with a prescription for cross-sex hormones. It's mm. impossible to do a psychological evaluation and screening like needs to be done in that amount of time. So what we have is these standards that are serving as window dressing for what's actually going on. And you even had physicians across England controversially saying that we, we need to wait and see. We, we need to do more of that rather than just prescribe these things because, again, we don't have the, the long-term data that's necessary. So you're looking at potential child abuse. You're looking at potentially sterilizing people who in no way can, can make that decision for the rest of their lives. What about this phenomenon we're hearing about more rapid onset gender dysphoria, especially among girls, maybe 15, 16, many of them autistic, where they're suddenly kind of out of the blue, even in groups, identifying as transgender, and then some having their breasts removed when they're old enough and then 20 years old, they're in deep regret. How, how, how distressing is this? Uh, very. And you were bringing up the UK. It's actually uh, the UK, Sweden, Australia, Brazil, and now a strong move in the US to try mm. to get this thing reanalyzed from top to bottom. But yeah, the rapid onset gender dysphoria you were talking about, uh, the first study done on that was done by Brown's uh, Dr. Lisa Littman. And as you'll recall, she came under huge uh, pressure when she published the results. And it was of parents of kids with ROGD. And there were certain commonalities, as you said. Uh, you know, for one, of course, there tends to be some kind of trauma that's going on. For example, this is common to find in uh, messy divorces and the like, where a child out of the blue with no prior identification, you know, as gender dysphoric or transgender ideation comes up with that. And uh, there's certain hallmarks of it, you know, um, whatever mental health problems the parents knew the child was having seem to get worse as they get further and further into the web. And by this, I usually mean the dark web. They start out with a regular web, but they quickly find their way to that 
pro-trans groups that have the advice for them. They become more and more antisocial. They pull away from family. They pull away from any friends that, that aren't either trans or very strongly trans-affirming. And before long, they don't trust any source that's not coming from a pro-trans uh, website. <clears throat> if they start to engage the transitioning, first comes social transitioning, which is easy enough. I mean, you do that on the day you decide. But say they get into the puberty blocking, the cross-sex hormones, then it, it, things you know escalate. Uh, not only are things not getting better, but the kid has in his mind that it's you know really the next step that's going to fix everything. And so then this compulsive you know advancing down the chain. Um, as Lisa Littman put it, for the kids in this position, um, transgenderism becomes the catch-all diagnosis, with transitioning mm. being the cure-all prescription. So you have the catch-all, mm. the cure-all. And it's certainly not the only time we see that when we're talking about alternative sexuality, but with this, it, it you know weighs large. Plus, if we're going with example, the, AP, the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5 uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, we would expect the, the rate of this occurring in society to be in the thousands. Uh, for women, it's two to three thousandths of a percent. For men, uh, under 14 thousandths of a percent, which is, you know, minuscule prevalence. And yet this last year, we see at least three different surveys I'm aware of, one national, one in Minnesota, one in California, interviewing kids. And 2% of them say, yeah, I could be trained. Well, something changed, and it wasn't biology and genetics. It sounds like social contagion and semantic Exactly. All right, friends, we come right back. There's a key, key development that I want to discuss with Dr. Van Mullen. In fact, that's why I asked him on the air. So this is all background. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with Dr. Andre Van Mol. He and other Christian leaders, the medical profession, political leaders, and pastors, and then individuals, ex-gays and ex-trans individuals came forward, testified. This is has made a major difference in California. As Dr. Van Mol said in the first segment, this is a template for other states. And, and Andre, uh, you're part of Bethel Church, and Bethel yeah. got involved in a prominent way as well. And you don't think, you don't associate Bethel with the culture wars, but you associate Bethel with caring about people. And this is about people. I mean, we keep talking culture wars and politics. This is about people. And, and even having people come forward some that, that we both know, ex-gays and others with their testimonies, that was a game changer as well, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was apparently the first of its kind in, in some ways. Uh, you know, both sides can bring their psychologists and doctors, and of course, in an overwhelmingly one-sided legislature like we have here, they can just write off our side if it's just our experts against theirs. But we had this steady stream of, of the once gay, the once trans, and there's a point in, in testimony, because basically you're only allowed two or three uh, opposing testimonies, just like they have that many pro, uh, and you're only allowed two, maximally, you know, three minutes. But after that, people can take the microphone and just say their name, where they're from, if they're part of an organization, and whether they're for or against the bill. We had 
200 plus people take the microphone. And it was, you know, well, well contained, calm, respectful. But it took quite a while to clear that lineup of people, you know, saying, I used to be this, I used to be that, uh, I oppose this bill. They'd never seen that before. And again, it was really handled in, in a biblical culture of honor way. Uh, in fact, at, at one point in the testimony, there were some gay activists who got up, started screaming uh, at uh, the witnesses and calling them liars. And it was the legislator in charge of the committee, I believe, who told them to knock it off. You, know, you will stop that. They are being respectful. You will be, too. So it's like, aha. So when you handle things in the proper spiritual protocol, there's some fights you don't have to fight. Mm. And again, it's just, hey, do you believe my story? I'm just, you know, yeah. I was helped by and, and of course, Go yeah, ahead. At the end of their testimony, that's exactly what the legislator said. We don't believe you exist. Like, yeah. well, you know, we're 200 of us here. I, I think we do. Right, and we represent tens of thousands of people who are quiet, just living their lives, that, that are, are not known and, are, and not being represented. So major news that, that led us, it's important to discuss all these things, and Andre, I so appreciate the work you've done, because you could just be living a nice life, you know, medical doctor, nice practice, nice family, happy going to church. Who needs the battle? Who needs the strife, the, the, the conflict, the getting vilified? But this is what we do as God's children. All right, give the background to the major news that we've been talking about in our, in our e-group online, news that the world is not reporting. Yeah, I'll give you the real brief brief, and then you can ask uh, whatever you like afterwards. Yeah. Last fall, around October, the American Journal of Psychiatry published a study by Branstrom and Pachankas claiming that um, you know, they looked at both what they call gender-affirming hormone treatment and gender-affirming surgeries, which people would recognize as sex reassignment surgery. <clears throat> On this total population study, first of its kind in Sweden, looking at all you know, 9.7 million people uh, and singling out those that were identified as gender incongruent, their study showed gender-affirming hormone treatment achieved nothing but that sex reassignment surgery improved mental health outcomes on these three particular uh, endpoints they looked at. Now, you know, fast forward ahead, and, and as you were saying, this thing was covered by a lot of the media, uh, rapid fire. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, here we are at the start of August, seven letters to the editor against this study were printed at the same time, one of which was written by a team that I headed up, and it was quite a team, uh, endocrinologist Michael Laidlaw, uh, child and adolescent psychiatrist Miriam Grossman. Some of your readers probably have her books on their shelves. And uh, the, the great and mighty professor Paul McHugh of Johns Hopkins University. And, you know, the, the question is, why did it take 10 months to publish these? And that was answered in the same edition. They published a, a major correction to the study in which they said they were concerned enough with what our letters said, and we said what we said in specifics with what little words word count they let us have, you know, uh, that they sought outside statistical consultation. Well, that's not done often, and I wish it was done a lot. And their consultants said, you know, we kind of see it, for the most part, like the critics do, provided this to the authors of the study, asked them to, you know, basically redo the calculations. They read it some things that weren't originally published, and on reexamination, they found there was no advantage to surgery. So what's huge here is you got this big study, you know, allegedly first of its kind, this total population study, that says, hey, sex reassignment surgery, it's helpful to reduce uh, mental health utilization on these three output things that we looked at. 
Then 10 months later, <clears throat> that same American Journal of Psychiatry issuing this major correction, which is not often done, after having hired an outside team of statistical consultants and the authors redoing uh, their stats, which resulted in another letter of theirs in this same edition, where they say, well, our conclusions you know, that we came by by this and that was too strong, uh, which is putting it mildly, uh, but at least they're, you know, conceding somewhat. Um, we found lots of problems with the study, and so did the other teams. So basically, what the world will hear was a major study released last year indicates that gender reassignments or whatever, sex change surgery, is of tremendous help psychological, emotional help to people, that hormone blockers, the various drugs, that whatever, hormones for life, that, that major study indicates this. So we want to, this is what you want to give to the children. This is what you want to encourage, sex change surgery. It's the right thing to do. The reality is the study demonstrated no such thing, but the world won't hear that part. What, what well, the popular we're, we're myth. We're working on that, and so are we. Uh, I, yeah, and so are we. So, are we. so we're doing our best to, do, to get the word out. But it's, it's almost like, they say, yeah, this guy was caught with gun in hand, guilty of shooting so-and-so, front page of all the tabloids, right? And then when they say, oh, actually, right. it wasn't him. He was in France when that happened. It was a mistaken identity. That's buried in page 23 somewhere, some obscure website. So we have to do our best to get the word out because the world is just not telling the truth. We've only got a couple minutes, but Andre, where in the world did this come from, this, this almost glorification of transgender this this celebration of sex change, this just plunging headlong in with drugs that could well be dangerous for children and things like that. What is going on? Uh, it's, it's ideology ruling. And of course, you know, you and I will look at it and say, uh, this is spiritual warfare and that kids are never exempt from that. You know, the rest of us may have standards of conduct that, that you preserve kids from your adult fights, but not on this. And it's directly targeting the kids. That's why we're making such a big deal of it. So uh, our what? team, you know, the different members of it have been able, doing this kind of thing, I counted it up last night. In the past two years, we've had eight letters to the editor or actual commentaries published in the peer review literature. And mm. that's, that's going to affect change, and we've got more coming. Yeah, and Andre, I'm, I'm so blessed by the fact that you and others who can do what you can do or raising your voices. I don't have the medical background. When I was asked to be on Tyra Banks years back talking about transgender children, I said, my doctorate is in Semitic languages, not not any related <laughs> field here. But they said, no, you're the right person for that. They just needed a nice target to shoot at that day. So that was yes. that was fine. I, I, was, I was the target trying to speak words of love in the midst of it, lo, love and sanity. What would you say to someone they themselves are struggling deeply, and these must be immense emotional struggles, an adult yeah. struggling with gender identity confusion or parents trying to sort things out with their children. Is, is there a book you'd recommend? Is there a website you'd recommend? Because obviously what boils down to is we care about people. What would you say? Well, for parents and, and students that are fighting against this thing, the Parents Resource Guide, which is at genderresourceguide.com. Uh, American College of Pediatricians at acpeds.org has a uh, you know, big section on this just Type in transgender in the search engine, and you'll see all kinds of resources, including online parent communities and support actually for parents of kids with a rapid onset gender dysphoria we talked about. And uh, Walt Heyer, who's you know maybe the most famous person 
in ministry to this group, having himself done the transition and even the transitioning uh, about 30 years ago at uh, sexchangeregret.com. Or Christian Medical and Dental Association, cmda.org. You can look up all the blogs and articles there uh, that I've written on this, and there have been many just in the past uh, three years. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking online at, at some of these uh, resources that are out. You know, recently Amazon refused to allow advertising for a book that really set the record straight on transgender issues. And right. uh, even though it's published by Regner, you know, a major conservative publisher. So there's opposition, but we will get the truth out, and the truth will set people free. So, Andre, thanks for the hard work. Again, doing what only folks in, in the medical and psychological profession can do. We'll do our best to amplify your research, shout it out. You know, I just wrote an article, put out a video about a, a gal that participated in the LGBTQ forum for the Democratic National Convention last week who identifies as nine, non-binary, gender transcendent, mermaid king queen. But this is where mm -hmm. it goes. There is, there's no limit to where things go. So through scripture, through love, through science, through reason, through patience, perseverance, we will see the tide turn and appreciate you being on the front lines there in California and the nation. God bless you, my brother. Thank you, Michael. All truth is God's truth. We're going to win this one. We will. Amen. All right, friends, be encouraged. There is hope and God's kingdom continues to advance in the midst of the darkness and confusion. Just find out when he wants.